Well, welcome today to Graceway Baptist Church, to our Sunday school hour. This is what we are going to present on October the 8th of uh, 2023. And we are still in Galatians as we make our way uh, through this. And we're looking today at chapter 5. So we are making progress. We're getting close to the end. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. I've entitled the uh, lesson today, Guaranteed. This is just a, a great affirmation of what the Lord says. Now, I have talked to people, obviously, over the years about their salvation. I have, uh, well, you know, one thing I can think of is I remember doing a funeral for somebody, and I went to the home to uh, visit the family, and I asked about the person who had died, about their spiritual condition. And as it turned out, this person just lived a, a hellish life, very rebellious, in trouble with the law, lots of drugs, alcohol, um, immorality, all kinds of things. And in fact, they had been killed in a bar fight in Tulsa. And, uh, you know, that's not the kind of stuff you want to hear. I didn't know the family and just had been asked to uh, step in and help them out, which I was willing to do. But obviously, as, as you know, you know, whether I'm present at the funeral or not has nothing to do with their eternal destiny. And I don't have any magic words or uh, rites or rituals or anything like that that can take a, a reprobate and make them into a justified person. Uh, so it, it's always a little bit awkward when you get into that situation because the family, obviously, they want the best for their loved one and they want them to die and go to heaven. So they call the preacher in and uh, think that that will help make it okay. And as we were talking about it, um, his mother said, after all of these things they talked about that were so incredibly horrible and were a repetitive way of life, it wasn't just like a one you know, and done type thing. This was just the way he lived his entire life. He was my age. I think I was in my mid-30s at the time. And uh, then his, his mama said, but oh, one thing I know, he's in heaven because when he was in Bible school, when he was eight years old, he prayed the prayer and was baptized. And so we know where he is. And, uh, you know, when I come across those kind of things, I don't know. I certainly hope he was. But that always makes you question, was he really a child of God? And other people that I've actually talked to and asked, I've heard people say, it's not often, but occasionally you hear these things like, well, my grandmother says I'm saved, or the pastor at the church I used to go to, he says I'm saved. Uh, you know, that type of thing. There are certain denominations that teach, and, and some of them are more like cults, but if you're a part of their denomination, then they declare you to be saved. And I've um, been at revival meetings and things like that where they have an altar call, people come up, and the evangelist has them repeat a prayer and then declares them to be saved. And Boy, I'm just not comfortable with any of that because it doesn't seem to fit with what the Word of God says. However, um, I have talked to people that believe you can lose your salvation. And one of the things they can never answer is, at what point do you lose your salvation? Because I do believe that once you're saved, 
you're saved for eternity by the promise of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you've been sealed under the day of redemption and um, all of those things. We could go into a lot of Bible verses about that, but we won't. And uh, so I've had some people challenge me on that. And so uh, they say there's just no way that a person like what I described at the uh, beginning, no way a person like that could ever be saved. Maybe they were saved when they were eight years old, but obviously they lost it. And so I've asked people the question, if that is true and you can lose your salvation, and again, I'm not commenting on whether that person was saved or not because I I genuinely don't know and I kind of doubt it. But if I were to talk to somebody, I would say, well, at what point were they saved? Well, when they prayed that prayer at VBS at eight years old. And at what point were they lost? And they will always say, I don't know. But at some point, I said, well, do we have to be perfect after we're saved in order to make it to heaven? And uh, they always say, well, no, nobody's perfect but God. Okay, well then, at what point is it that we have it and then we lose it? And they can never say anything like that. And my question would be, and I would propose this to you, if that were true and you could lose your salvation, at some point you could be unjustified, uncalled, unsaved, unsealed, unindwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, uh, I guess an eraser taking your name out of the book of life. Well, wouldn't the Bible tell us at least at what point that happens when your sins get to be 51% when you've done this three times or, or whatever, but there's nothing in there about it. And uh, I don't believe that you can lose your salvation And I would also maybe propose the same question to someone who says, well, you've got to trust in Christ, but you've also got to be circumcised or keep the feast, or you've got to be uh, like the Church of Christ, say, baptized into our church by one of our ministers, or uh, the United Pentecostals say you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved, things like that, okay? And uh, it's interesting that... uh, when, when they go into that, they can't really tell you when you lose your salvation. And it seems to me like you can't ever have, if it's works-based, assurance that you have salvation until it's too late. Uh, you know, like the Muslims believe that everything's going to be put on a scale and the good has to outweigh the bad. And then Allah will be merciful and uh, let you into heaven. But you don't really know that until you get there. And once you get there, well, it's too late to add to your good works. Yeah, you, you know, you were two-tenths of a point short, you know. That's about the way it seems like it would be for me. I was almost nearly, but not quite hardly there. And uh, now it's too late for me to do anything to gain a little bit more in it. So none of these things ever tell us for sure when we actually get it, when we make it, or where we're supposed to be when we lose it. I don't think any of those views are visible because I believe that salvation starts with the plan of God before the foundation of the world because the Bible says we are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. And as Spurgeon said, God most certainly would have chosen me before I was born because He would never have chosen me after I was born. But we can all say amen to that. 
and uh, it's by his grace. And Jesus said on the cross to Telestai, the debt is paid. He paid for all of our sins on the cross, past, present, and future. And then we are secured under the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, Jesus said, he who comes to me, uh, think about this, I will in no wise cast out. That's out of the authorized version. You know what that means? If you come to Christ, you come because you were drawn to Christ, because Jesus also said, no man can come to me except the Father who sent me draws him. We know that. And uh, he said, and if you come to me, I will never cast you out. In other words, there are no circumstances present anywhere in the universe where he would abandon you or unsave you or throw you out. In fact, when we get saved, we not only are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which means that would have to be taken away, but we are also placed in Christ. In other words, if I lose my salvation or you lose your salvation, Christ would have to lose his as well because we're unified with him and we are one with him. And doesn't that sound blasphemous? Because it is. That's never going to happen. And that's where our security is. And that's what Paul is talking about here when we get to this fifth chapter. And that's why we've entitled it Guaranteed. We need to have assurance of our salvation. It's certainly not guaranteed by the denomination or the church or the pastor you have or what grandma says or anybody like that at all. In fact, the Bible says that you need to know, not just merely feel or assume it like some people do. You need to know. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it says, be diligent. That's what in the authorized version it says study. That means be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself, yourself, not somebody else, approved to God, a worker that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How do I know I'm saved? Because I've understood the scripture and put my trust in what the Bible says. That's what it means to rightly divide, correctly interpret, understand, and apply the scripture to your life. But think about this, 1 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never uh, fall. We're supposed to know that we are saved, in other words. In fact, in the uh, Gospel of John, these things are written that you might believe and know that you have eternal life. Not guess, not assume, but know. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 is our text. So let's read it together. Stand fast or stand firmly, therefore, where? In the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who uh, becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. Now that's key. You who attempt to be justified by the law. 
You have fallen from grace. And that doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. It means that you are missing the mark, missing the target. Salvation is always by grace. If you go any other way, you're not pursuing salvation. You have fallen from grace. For we believers, those who have trusted Christ, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails or accomplishes anything. Either way you go, but it's faith working through love. Okay, let's make sure that we understand that. Number one, when he says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty which Christ Jesus has made us free, and don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He's talking about not wavering, not moving, not letting go of that, not considering anything else. That is, well, uh, to quote from that game, uh, who wants to be a millionaire, remember that? Is that your final answer? And it always has to be that Christ is our final answer. We are saved because of what he has done and we cling to him and we hold to him and we trust to him and we rest in him. That's what it means to believe, not just to simply say, I think he existed. I think he died on the cross, but to cling to what he did as the payment for our sin. And so I've uh, put point one, focused intensity over time equals sanctification. You want to grow in Christ? You can't be haphazard. You can't be inconsistent. You want to grow in Christ and know Christ and have the assurance of your salvation and the peace that passes understanding. You can't be a hit or miss type person. You've got to put your eyes on Christ and you've got to hold to him. You've got to pursue him and you've got to be filled with him and his word and his knowledge and his spirit. You get the idea. And uh, so stand fast, stand firm in all of that. So if someone comes along and says, well, I, it's good that you've trusted Christ, but you also need to, then you don't, you don't waver on that. You hold to Christ. If I'm going to hell, Christ is going to have to go to hell. That's kind of the way I would, I would put it. Nothing in my hand I bring, the old hymn says, simply to thy cross I cling. Hold to him, look to him, and trust in him, and nothing else. And don't let anybody else uh, mislead you, or rattle you, or shake you up, or cause you to question. You hold to Jesus. Jesus, and Jesus only, is our Savior. And Paul calls, whenever you play around with those other things, you're going back to get tangled up. Have you ever been uh, walking and um, maybe through your house and there's something that maybe it's dark, maybe you get up to in the middle of the night to get a drink of water or something and you trip over something that you didn't know was there or you get tangled up maybe in something that the kids left there that's, you know, um, I don't know, a rope or something like that. Maybe your kids don't play or leave rope in the floor, but uh, you know, things happen. And that tanglement where you can't quite get it off and you can't see it to pull it off and everything, every time you pull it, it seems to kind of tighten up or, it, it, you know, and you just can't get it off. That's what he's picturing here for us. You step away from Christ because you're not standing firm in him. And then you get all tangled up 
and all wrapped up in something. Kind of like um, if you ever watch nature films, maybe a lion that's going through and, and, and falls into the, uh, the net that's laying there for him that he doesn't see, and all of a sudden he's caught up in that net and he can't get out of it. It's, it's that type of thing. This is a trap, and the devil wants to destroy your testimony, and he wants to take away your joy, and he wants to take away your freedom in Christ. And so he uh, does this, and we get entangled again. And, and then he uses the word, a yoke of bondage. Who wears a yoke? Not someone who's free. Who wears a yoke? An animal a piece of property, something that is owned by someone else for the purpose of doing their work. And so if you uh, have an ox that is bound into a yoke and uh, pulling a plow with another, another oxen, and, um, you know, they don't get to decide that they're going to take the day off. They don't get to decide that they're going to go to the beach. They don't get to decide they're going to stop and just eat today and all of that. No, they have to do what their master wants him to do. And Paul said, why do you want to get back into the yoke? You've been set free. And Jesus said, if you come to me when you're weary and heavy laden from the slavery of sin and the slavery of religion, come to me and I'll give you rest for your soul. You can have peace about that. You can have security. And then he says, and I'll give you a yoke that is tailor-made for you. And I'll give you a burden that is light, a burden that doesn't tire you out weigh you down and disappoint you, but a burden that is fruitful, a burden that is productive, a burden to where you uh, can handle it because he will give us the strength as well by his Holy Spirit. Paul said, why do you want to take a step back into all of that? Now, understand when he says stand fast, it is our human nature to kind of drift. If you've ever been to the beach and you've been playing out in the water, And, uh, you know, you're swimming, body surfing, dunking other people, stuff like that. And uh, you play for a while and maybe after 30, 45 minutes, you look over to the shore and you're looking and say, where's my stuff? And your umbrella with all your stuff and your beach towel and all of that is, is way back, you know, a quarter of a mile away. And you weren't even aware that you were drifting. You weren't even aware that you were getting away from all of that. That's what he means here. Some people do it without meaning to. It's not that they consciously say, consciously say, I don't want to be a part of Christ. I'm going to follow this group or do this thing. It just kind of happens. They just sort of drift. And when you know what you know about depravity, just make a wild guess. I'll give you three guesses. The first two don't count. What's going to happen and which way are you going to go? Toward holiness? Toward Christ? Toward freedom? Now, you know as well as I do, you're going to drift away from those things. Paul said you've got to consciously stand firm in the liberty that Christ has given you. Focused intensity over time, not just every once in a while, but over time. We've got to be consistent. And when you look at these words entangled in bondage, well, they're certainly negative, hurtful words, and they're describing what happens if we don't keep our eyes on Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance, endurance, the race that is set before us, looking, and that means fastening our eyes 
on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you get it? Paul said, don't look anywhere else. Don't let anything cause you to drift away from the truth of the gospel. We need the gospel all the time, every day, and we need to think about the gospel and be lashed to the gospel in order to be truly free. Strange to put those words together, lashed and free, and yet that's exactly the way that it works. Number two, the law demands total perfection. How many times have we heard that as we've gone through the book of Galatians? And Paul said, and I say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You don't know what you're getting into, he's saying, Judaizers. And Galatians, you don't want to follow them because you're getting in over your head. You're getting into something that will never work. You're getting into something that will never accomplish anything. And you're getting into something that you will never be able to get out of. And so the law indeed is the standard for righteousness. But the problem is a violation of any part of that law makes us a criminal, makes us unrighteous. That's in the New Testament uh, as well. In another book, James chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And I don't know exactly why he picked out those two commandments, but he could also say, if you do not murder, like the Ten Commandments say, but you fail to honor God and worship him alone, or you use his name in vain, or you don't honor your father and your mother. I mean, God wrote all of them. And so a violation of one nullifies everything. God expects you to keep all of it. And Paul is saying here, if you're going to trust in circumcision for your justification, then you have to go for all of the law, not just that one thing. It's not just a one and done situation. You become uh, obligated to keep every part of the law all of the time. Why would you want to do that? Why not rather trust the one who did that and kept all of it in every respect and did it for you and on your behalf? And he'll take your sin, nail it to the cross and then take his righteousness and put it on your record book. Which one is a, is a better way? You see, whenever you have a works-based salvation, the best they can say to you is, do more. You, you, you've done one thing, now you've got to do more. And uh, you've got to not only do more, but you've got to do better. And uh, yet Paul said it's to no avail. It's never enough. It never is good enough and it, in, in quality, and it's never good enough in quantity. You could have done more, and you could have done better, and it never, never works out. So trust Christ because he actually did perfectly for you what you could never do. Okay, that's the important thing. He is our substitute and he lived his life in order to save us. And he died on the cross to save us. And uh, that's what we have to trust in. Okay, number three. 
Paul says to reject grace is a rejection of Christ. So if you have, uh, like the Judaizers here, Paul called them false brethren because they said you had to be circumcised to be saved. It's a little more than just a theological disagreement. It's a little more than just, ah, you're a little off on this one thing. No, no, this takes you away from Christ. So if somebody comes up to me and they say, well, I believe you have to be saved, but you have to speak in tongues as evidence of your salvation, we part company over that. If somebody says, well, you can uh, trust Christ, but you've got to be baptized by one of our ministers in our church, uh, then we part company over that. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's Paul's point. The Judaizers, he called them false brethren. Remember? false brothers. They're pseudo brothers. They're not real because they're not trusting exclusively, solely, and totally in Christ. They're trusting in their own works because a rejection of grace is a rejection of Christ. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you've fallen from grace. You've tumbled off of that. You can't grasp a hold of grace because you're holding on to the parachute of your works and it's not going to save you. It's not going to hold you up. Only grace can do that. Estranged is translated severed in uh, other translations and a true believer is never estranged from Christ. Remember, it says that he will never leave us or forsake us, even when we fall into sin, even when we stumble and fall off of the path, even when we are attacked by the enemy, he never leaves us. So there's never that estrangement, okay? Now your relationship may suffer and your fellowship with him may suffer because you're in rebellion and you're under chastisement, but you're never severed from him. He is always with you at your best and at your worst. True believers are said to be by the New Testament in several places, in Christ. And we are indwelt by Christ. He lives in us through the Holy Spirit. So we're in him, he is in us, and that's a permanent condition. And so Paul is addressing those who, quote, attempt to be justified by law. They add works to their salvation. May make them feel good, may make them look good, may puff them up in pride, but it is inadequate to save them. Their parachute has a hole in it. Their parachute doesn't fully deploy. Okay, their boat is sinking. And so it's an inadequate thing. Your faith has to be put in a secure object. The object has to be worthy of your faith. And that's why Christ is the only one we can trust. So the question, did they lose their salvation? No, they are revealing that they never had it. It revealed what they really were. I want you to think about this. If uh, somebody has a, a transitional surgery, it's a man who becomes a woman. They may take hormones. They may have surgical things done to them. And boy, they sure look like a woman. Most of them don't. But uh, we look at them and we say, oh, this is the exception. Man, this guy really, really looks like a woman, a beautiful woman. Kind of makes me throw up in my mouth just a little bit. But that person dies. And they are buried, and let's say 500 years from now, an archaeologist digs up their body and there's their skeleton. 
And you know what that archaeologist is going to say when he looks at that skeleton? Oh, this is a man from approximately 500 years ago. When they do a DNA test on the bones of the skeleton, they're going to say this was a human male from 500 years ago. And it's not that that person lost their femaleness. They never had it. The problem is, the thing is, the DNA test and the study of the archaeologist is simply revealing what they really were. And so somebody may come along and they may be like a a trans-Christian, but they're not really born again. They just put on the clothes and they may, uh, in a spiritual sense, have the surgery and the hormones, but they've never trusted Christ. They do not have the DNA of Jesus in them in a spiritual sense. They're not a part of Christ and he doesn't indwell them. And so when they fall away like that, they're just revealing what they really were all of the time. And so uh, that's how we look at that situation. They went out from us because they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have no doubt remained with us, John says in his epistle. Okay, let's wrap up this. Number four, trusting in the law, you have no assurance, but in Christ, you have a guarantee. This is a great note to end on. And please don't miss this. And make sure you get to this point when you're teaching your lessons. I know sometimes it's hard to get everything in. Paul says in verse 5, For we through the Spirit, capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope, the confident assurance is what that means, of righteousness by faith. You know, in other words, We who have been saved, we understand we're not everything we're supposed to be, but one day we'll be glorified. And one day we will truly be righteous in every respect because of what Christ has done for us, either in the rapture when we're taken out or when we die and we're absent from the body and present with the Lord. We have been justified. We are being sanctified and we will be glorified. And that's a permanent state whenever we get to heaven. And Paul said there's something in the believer, the Spirit of God, that eagerly looks forward to that. Won't it be nice when our fellowship is perfect? Won't it be nice when our worship is pure and undistracted? Won't it be nice when we can really enjoy God and the things of God and find a thrill in it and it never abates, it never goes away, and yet it never gets old or boring either wave after wave after wave of joy. No discouragement, no depression, no no disillusionment, nothing like that in heaven. I get so tired. It seems like almost every week I hear about a a person that I thought might have been okay and they fall away and they say, I no longer believe in the things of God or they fall into sin or something like that. Man, it's going to be nice because in heaven, that'll never, ever happen. And when it speaks of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.14 in the Christian Standard Bible says, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. In the New Living Translation, I don't always use these, but uh, they, they get the point across. Ephesians um, chapter 1, verse 14, in the NLT, it says, The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance that he promised and he has purchased 
to uh, be his own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify him. So when you think about the fact that when we are saved, the moment we are saved, we receive the Holy Spirit, not part of him. I'm sorry, the charismatics are wrong. You don't get the spirit on the installment plan. You get all of him at the moment of salvation. He draws you to Christ. He gives you faith to believe Christ. He indwells you and he seals you so that your salvation is never in doubt and never questioned by uh, those who really matter. But when we look at it like this, think of this. A young man gives a young lady, he gets down on one knee and he says, will you marry me? And she says, yes. My father-in-law used to say he got down on his knees to Mama Lou and he said, wilt thou? And she wilted. But uh, that's another story. And so what does he give her? He puts a ring on on his finger. An engagement ring is a symbol of the promise. I will marry you. I will give you my name. I will provide for you. I will be your protector. I will be faithful to you. And I will make this all legal whenever we get married. It's a promise. The Holy Spirit is like an engagement ring. We're the bride of Christ after all. At the moment we were saved, the Holy Spirit was God's promise. I will do everything I've ever promised. He's also called the earnest of our inheritance. You know what that means? Like when you buy a house and they say, well, we need $1,500 earnest money. What is the earnest money? This is my guarantee that I will carry through and I will fulfill this deal. You've got a sale and here's the money to prove it. That's what the Holy Spirit, it's God's way of saying, I'm putting earnest money down on you. You are guaranteed to be saved. I'm giving you an engagement ring. I promise I'm going to do this. And God keeps his word. And Paul said, we look forward to that day and we rejoice in that day because that's what we really want. Both of them say, I'm serious and I guarantee that this will happen. And this is our as we sing our blessed assurance. So whenever we sing that song that says, in Christ alone, my hope is found, that's really what we're talking about. For in Christ Jesus, neither is circumcision nor uncircumcision that avails anything but faith working through love. In other words, if somebody wants to be circumcised, maybe like Timothy did so he could relate to the Jews, That's fine. Nothing wrong with that because it's no big deal. But if you attach meaning to it, that this is what makes you acceptable to God, now we have a problem because it's in Christ. We all agree on that. But understand Christ alone. Christ alone. And that's where we really have to camp out. And that's what separates true believers from even other aspects of Christianity. Christ alone. Okay? So thank you for your time, and I hope this blessed you, and I hope it makes you anticipate going to heaven and reminds you of who you are in Christ and the freedom that you have and the joy that you have and how much you were loved. Rest in him and enjoy him, and may the Lord bless you because you are a child of God. And we'll see you next week. God bless.